You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. With a sense of urgency is how lawyers for the Viola Alliance want to see the defueling of the military's Red Hill facility. The umbrella of environmental community advocates has amended its legal complaint to have more of a say in the timeline. In addition to holding up the Clean Water Act and the historic discharges and leaks into Pearl Harbor, it's looking at a second argument as it pertains to the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. We talked to Attorney Daniel Cooper about the amended complaint and why the alliance has added about a half a dozen more plaintiffs to its legal challenge against the Navy over the underground fuel storage tanks. It became clear to us that the Navy was not going to defuel those tanks for six or more years, and no, no sooner than six years and probably much longer, given the built-in delays and excuses in the defueling plan and the lack of critical path planning. It just was, it was, it's more of a gesture than an actual defueling plan, is what our engineer tells us. And it became clear to us that that oil is going to be sitting there in those tanks as a ticking time bomb that could destroy the, the sole source aquifer for most of Oahu at any time, a very significant risk that, it w- that one of those tanks will fail at any time. And six years is an unacceptable amount of time for that time bomb to be ticking. And that's what drove us to amend the complaint and add our RICRA claims so that we could compel a much faster and safer defueling and closure and cleanup. Explain to our listeners, uh, what are Richter claims? It's the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. It's another federal statute. We have two two federal statutes we're using, the Clean Water Act for oil spills and discharges to Pearl Harbor, and then the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act that prohibits the creation of an imminent and substantial endangerment to human health and the environment from solid or hazardous waste. And that's what this oil is once it's released is it's waste. And it has created an imminent substantial endangerment to human health and the environment. Already, those 90,000 people that couldn't drink their water or drank some of it and got sick, and there could be a much bigger problem if one of those 12 million gallon tanks goes. Uh, it will destroy the aquifer. It'll be it basically destroyed for our lifetime. We need to address that risk in less than six years. That's just not an acceptable path toward creating a safe drinking water supply for the people of Hawaii. Well, we know that the health department here in Hawaii is not happy with that timeline, and the military is supposed to turn something in in September with additional information. We're also waiting on the EPA to come up with their investigative report. What's your sense for, as far as a timeline? You folks have amended this complaint. You've added a few more uh, plaintiffs, but how quickly do they have to respond? The Navy is going to have to either answer our complaint or, or file a motion to dismiss saying that we you know, we have no right to be involved in approximately the next 60 days. And then we will immediately start whatever happens with that. We're pretty confident we're not going to be dismissed. We'll immediately start discovery and we'll be requesting a lot of the documents that the Navy has submitted to DOH or to the public as redacted documents. We, we you know, we redactions are inappropriate in our view, and we need to get our hands on those documents. And we're hoping we can begin substantive conversations with those folks right away, sooner than 60 days. But, we, you know, we have been in discussions with uh, the Department of Justice and the Navy, and we're hoping once we get the complaint amended, we're hoping to have a further conversation about getting the engineers talking rather than the lawyers. That's, that's our hope, is we'll start having substantive conversations. I, I'd also like to respond quickly to your comment about, you know, the Navy coming up with a plan and DOH rejecting the defueling plan, and there's going to be an amendment, and EPA coming up with a plan. I think it's worth recalling 
that the Navy spilled when it was a 19,000 gallons years ago, and there was an administrative order on consent entered into with Department of Health, US EPA, and the Navy, and nothing happened. Nothing meaningful happened in terms of closure and defueling or, or better safety, and we've had this, the, the second significant spill that is what caused all those people to have to move out of their houses and that risk to the aquifer. So the alliance has concluded that the citizens, the affected public, needs to have a seat at the table. It can't just be the agencies because they failed us in the past. We need to have a seat at the table with a federal judge making sure that everyone's being honest and that the cleanup and defueling and cleanup will happen as quickly as possible. So that's that's why we're here. You're right. There's more going to be more studies and more work, but the public needs to have a seat at the table. There have been some recent reports just about the condition of the distribution system uh, and the fact that, you know, there isn't a regular maintenance program for both the Army's system and the Navy's system. Um, you know, and, and I don't know how you folks are, are, are looking at that. Our focus is on the, the water before it gets into that distribution system. We've been relying on Board of Water Supply, for example, to you know, address that question. Our perspective is on the other end of it, the, the aquifer itself, and ensuring that the aquifer is not destroyed by the catastrophic spill from Red Hill. We don't bring expertise to the table on the distribution system. Our, our focus is on the other end on the aquifer and keeping the keeping the petroleum out of it. And I know the Board of Water Supply uh, did raise a red flag because they did find some contamination in uh, one of their monitoring wells, which they hadn't seen before. Yeah, it's moving. Nobody knows exactly where or how fast because there isn't adequate monitoring. The Navy doesn't do that, although we think they should. We'll be seeking an order requiring them to. But yes, it, that's very worrisome. And I think the Board of Water Supply is correctly concerned about that. And I, we applaud their involvement to date, and we hope they, they stay involved. That was Attorney Daniel Cooper, who's representing an alliance of environmental advocates who filed a legal challenge against the Navy to expedite its defueling of underground fuel tanks at Red Hill because they believe uh, that uh, uh, we're at risk of a catastrophic failure. You're listening to The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Did you know it's National Beach Day? For today's quiz, we're putting on our slippers and slathering on the zinc oxide to explore our shorelines in search of a hardy plant that quickly takes over open ground. Recognizable for its golden blooms, it can be found along the sandy coast of Oahu, Kauai, Maui, Molokai, and the Big Island. In the cultivated garden, growers may train vines along a chain-link fence or trellis. The glossy green leaf is composed of three oval leaflets and yields blooms that form bright yellow clusters, 
carried on flower spikes. Once pollinated, bean pods form small, round, reddish-brown seeds. It's quite easy to propagate and thrives in many soil types, from sand to compacted clay. This nitrogen-fixing plant can be grown as a green mature crop and used by farmers, organic farmers, to enrich the soil. For today's quiz, what is the Hawaiian name of this versatile little plant? We'll dig around in the dirt and get you the answer in the second half of the show. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HP or tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Forgiving student loan debt is a razor's edge. It may help some, but not others, and others might be resentful of the move. Some say tackling the high cost of college in the first place may be a better move. Uh, HPR's Sabrina Bowden joins us this morning to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So the big news was that President Joe Biden announced up to $10,000 for student loan debt would be forgiven or on federal student loans or up to uh, $20,000 on Pell Grant recipients, depending on income level. In the state, there's around 122,000 people with student loan debt. So we wanted to go deeper with that and talk to people about how the program would affect their lives. Um, We did a call out on our air, and I wanted to just share a couple stories that I heard. The first uh, is from Paul on Kwe'i. He makes the argument that there should be more financial aid directed toward parents or given to parents, kind of like how private schools offer financial aid. My name is Paul Adelson. I'm a father before I help take care of two kids that are not on my own and help with my uh, sister-in-law who had classes to become a nurse assistant, I apologize. My son goes to island school. Since colleges are like private schools, why don't we help all the struggling parents around America pay for their kids to go to higher education so they could better themselves? And in Hawaii, when we have positions that are very uh, short, like nursing and, and other positions, why doesn't government help by taking all the costs away from those educational positions in order to stock them that way they can better society? And I have a second voicemail from Daniel Cunningham in Volcano, and I spoke to him last week, and he would like to see the government invest more money toward job creation or renewable resources. This is Daniel from Volcano calling. I've paid my student loans. And it uh, seems to me that the people who owe, owe money for their uh, their college education, should there should be some kind of a job opportunity. They're not looking for a handout. They want opportunity. And job opportunity, I think, is a solution for this student loan problem. Yeah, those are very good points, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, you know, there. I mean, there are programs where you can work off your loans. You get credit for that. Different uh, forgiveness programs right. with nonprofits or working in government, yeah. Yeah, and then the other families who are saying, wait a minute, you know, is this fair? 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I really heard from people who called in is that there's a wide range of different life circumstances about what led them to picking up student loans or having to defer them later in life and kind of like racking up higher interest rates or just accumulating over time. And that's what uh, Debbie Halbert over at um, the University of Hawaii, she's the vice president for academic strategy. And she often hears these different stories about how people have to make choices the amount of student loans that someone takes out can affect both where they go as well as whether or not they can finish. And so I think one of the reasons you see people oftentimes starting at community colleges now and transferring into a four-year degree, and about 50% of our four-year students do start at the community colleges in Hawaii, one of the reasons is that it's an affordable option for them. It's more affordable than it is potentially for some to to start at a four-year campus. So that's changed how people go to college over the last few decades as well, whereas before you would have seen people starting primarily at the four-year institutions and staying there. But again, whether or not people can afford to stay in school remains a important consideration. And sort of what um, Debbie's talking about is there's other needs that people have. They, you know, they have to pay for food. They have to pay for healthcare access. And over at UH, they've, you know, created different programs um, to help people. So the University of Hawaii system has just stood up a student basic needs support program, which is identifying other kinds of needs that students have that go beyond tuition, right? So affordable housing is one of those, access to health care, whether or not you can have a, a food security. These are considerations that not just Hawaii, but campuses across the United States are also beginning to consider because it's more than just the tuition that makes college a challenging uh, issue in terms of affordability. So the U.S. Department of Education is still finalizing plans, um, but some borrowers will need to apply for the program while others will have it done automatically. Um, An application should be available by October, according to the Federal Student Aid Office. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that needs to be sorted out, it seems like. Yeah, um, even at like the state level, um, it was just yesterday that Department of Taxation Director Isaac Choi issued a memo clarifying that this forgiveness program would not be taxed as income, which was the worry for some people. Yeah, because I think that uh, varies according, you know, what state you live in, right? State Mm -hmm. to state. And so, gosh, uh, does anyone have a handle as to, let's say, how many uh, people in Hawaii, um, you know, could get this uh, loan forgiveness program? I'm not exactly sure on that, but I know as a state, there's over, I think it's $4.8 billion of student loan debt. Okay, and uh, gosh, we'll just have to then wait and see come October um, and... Yeah, by the end of the year, the program is supposed to be sorted out and people are supposed to start seeing sort of this reflected in their statements. And then uh, as far as these ideas that uh, the listeners uh, called in with, I mean, um, gosh, I mean, the, the bigger problem of just the cost of college, uh, are efforts going to be made to, to look at that as well? I think it it, depend, it depends on the states. Um, as Debbie was telling me earlier yesterday, that Hawaii is really lucky that the state government is still um, putting money into the school system so that we can have more affordable um, education. Okay, we'll see how it goes. All right, but thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR Sabrina Bowden. Uh, to check out her stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org.
Our reality check today looks at COVID-positive prison inmates. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Kevin Dayton is on the line this morning. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, so your story today is about inmates that are returning from Arizona. Correct. Uh, As you know, uh, Hawaii holds about 1,000 prison inmates in a place called the Saguaro Correctional Center, which is a private prison in a little town called Eloy, Arizona. It's about midway between Phoenix and Tucson, if you know that area. And the state pays about $45 million to maybe $50 million a year to a company called Core Civic, which operates that prison. And the state does that because there isn't enough room for those inmates in Hawaii correctional facilities. Because, of course, Hawaii hasn't opened a new prison um, since 1987. Mm-hmm. Um, so this year, periodically, inmates are returned to Hawaii as they approach their release dates, as they're ready for parole uh, or need to come back for programs or to move them into a lower security facility. And prison officials got an unpleasant surprise earlier this month when 118 inmates were returned to Hawaii from Saguaro on a chartered flight, and five of them immediately tested positive for COVID-19 after they got off the plane. Yeah, it's like a timeout here, guys. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, um, since then, another 16 inmates in that same group of prisoners have tested positive, and there is some speculation that since the inmates were all in a confined space together for an hours-long Trans-Pacific flight, they might all eventually test positive before this is over. The uh, Department of Public Safety, understandably, is unhappy with this, and they've ordered Core Civic to mass test all of the inmates at Saguaro, which is, of course, more than 1,000. Um, the state is also demanding that in the future, any inmates who are returned to Hawaii from Saguaro, from Arizona, be tested before they get on that plane to come home. Yeah, because uh, the infection rate uh, in Arizona, I think, was, was uh, higher than what it's you know, been here in Hawaii, right? That's exactly right. So there's been a lot of speculation that Saguaro has been reporting relatively low numbers of infections among the 1,000 inmates that are there, that are at the the facility in Arizona. Um, And correctional staff locally has been wondering for quite a while, of course, Civic has been sort of lowballing the number of COVID-19 cases simply because Saguaro doesn't test as much as as Hawaii. For example, Saguaro reported no new COVID-19 cases in June or July of this year, but Arizona as a whole had a much higher per capita infection rate than Hawaii does. Um, there isn't a lot of traffic between the outside and the inside in a private prison, but COVID can still be brought into prisons by staff, so you have to kind of wonder. As it turns out, we've got some pretty good data uh, published by the Department of Public Safety that suggests maybe the official case, case count at Saguaro really is artificially low because of a lack of testing. And the best comparison is really Halava Correctional Facility, which is our our largest prison. It was holding about 800 inmates as of last week, and uh, Halava had done 12,279 COVID tests on inmates since the start of the pandemic. Now compare that to Saguaro, which was holding uh, about a little less than 1,100 prisoners last week, and they've done only 3,898 tests of Hawaii inmates since this whole thing began. So not surprisingly, Saguaro has reported far fewer positive test results um, since the pandemic began. And one thing really stands out, Saguaro reported just 39 new COVID cases at that facility in the past year. And if you want to compare that to what was going on in Hawaii, where, again, you know, the, the infection rate is lower, the state's largest prison uh, had nearly double doubled the number of cases that it had during the past year, from 596 in August of 2021 to 1,166 in August of this year.
the 570 new cases compared to 39 at Saguaro. So you do kind of have to wonder. Yeah, no, that that doesn't seem right. Um, but, <laughs> it's a puzzle, yeah. And and I don't know what the policy has been about uh, these flights, uh, you know, that come in regularly with uh, uh, the prisoners, you know, uh, if they yeah, were requiring up to, up, them to wear masks on the plane or what. Well, I don't know about masks on the plane. Um, that's a good question since the CDC doesn't require that anymore. But up to this point, the pre-flight screening at Saguaro has involved a 10-day quarantine for the inmates um, who are being returned to Hawaii and temperature checks before they get on the plane. Corbett Civic says none of the 118 inmates had any symptoms when they boarded the plane on August 18th. And yet here we are now, 21 of them have tested positive. Yeah, and I, I just wonder where they're holding these folks if they're testing positive, you know, because they did have those storage units that they brought in uh, at a couple of facilities, right, as a, a potential quarantine isolation units. Right. You're thinking of the of the what we think of as cargo boxes, essentially. Yes, mm-hmm. they did. They did purchase a number of those with air conditioning in them. Um, I don't know whether the inmates are being held there specifically. It could be. Um, but I do know that they have not moved out of Falava. So the standard protocol for the state is when an inmate comes into the system, you give them 10 days of, of essentially quarantine as an incoming inmate, whether they're positive or not, so that they don't immediately begin to spread the disease within the state, within the system. Sorry. Yeah. Well, that would be a, a smart practice. <laughs> it it so. would be. And then just to, just as a reminder, this has not been sort of a benign event for prison inmates any more than anybody else. We've had 10 inmates who have died in the Hawaii system in, in custody from COVID-19 since this began. Yeah, sadly, uh, COVID gets everywhere. But thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. You can can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Justin Zorn. And I'm Lee Mars. We're co-authors of Golden. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about the power of silence in a world of noise. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Hawaii's Little League baseball team returned home this week after its victory in the World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, this past Sunday. Winning run at second base. Impressive. That victory is our state's fourth Little League World Series title since 2005, tied second all-time amongst teams from the U.S. It's the most recent milestone in our state's long history with the American pastime that started with the father of modern baseball, Alexander Cartwright, moving to Oahu in uh, the 18 in 1849. So how did our state become such a youth baseball powerhouse? HBR's Sabrina Bowden returns to our show this morning to share her interview with Lance Van Auken, retired executive director of the World of Little League Museum in Pennsylvania. 
So I'm interested in the intersection of Hawaii and Little League. Recently, there's been a lot of um, really good teams coming out of the state. I was wondering what the history is and how does Hawaii really play into the bigger scheme of Little League? Well, before, um, before the 2000s, we didn't get very many teams from Hawaii in the, in the Little League World Series. And part of the reason for that is the entire western United States was one region. And very often it's tough to get past Southern California when it comes to baseball. You know, sometimes in Major League Baseball, that's the case, too. But once the uh, Little League split and created uh, 16 teams in the World Series instead of eight, it made it a little bit easier for Hawaii to make it to the World Series. But they, I think they combined that with just getting better and better uh, in recent years. So, you know, I think you've seen a, a surge in, in Hawaiian teams lately at the Little League World Series. And that's really interesting because we don't have any professional baseball teams out here. We're really isolated. So it makes me wonder, how does a really good team that's able to defeat teams in California, defeat teams in Arizona, keep going up and up and up? And how does that work? How does a Little League team get so good? It's really not by mistake that success happens. And it happens at all different levels. You know, you have great of volunteers in Hawaii, starting with the district administrators out there that help these local leagues put quality programs on the fields. And then the, the volunteers at that local level from the, you know, the president of the league down to the, you know, the assistant coach on one of the T-ball teams, all those people combine to, to make it something special. And it, and it really doesn't matter where uh, in the world uh, it is, you know, we we saw that in Taiwan back in 1969 when they first made it to the Little League Baseball World Series and ended up winning 17 of them since then. And, you know, nobody would have thought of Taiwan as a baseball powerhouse, but they became one for those same reasons, because they had great volunteers that went out and got the kids to play and when you when you get all those kids playing if baseball becomes the sort of the sport of choice for kids in that age group you're naturally going to be more competitive well thank you for bringing the international look at it too do you think there's anything special or unique about hawaii in little league yeah it's interesting because hawaii was one of the first areas outside the the contiguous or the then the 48 states back in the in the early 1950s to put programs on the field. You know, right in the 1950-1951 time frame, we had leagues in Panama, the country of Panama, uh, Hawaii, and Canada getting started. So those were really the first places outside of the 48 states that, that got going. So um, Hawaii's roots in Little League go very deep. And this was even before statehood, right? Yes. Correct. Right. Yep. Do you know anything about how they got involved before statehood? Well, it it, uh, it happened in Hawaii probably the same way it happened in, in the other states. And uh, what happened was Little League was pretty much confined to Pennsylvania throughout most of the 1940s. And uh, then in 1946-47, uh, this local program started getting notice by communities uh, outside of Williamsport, outside of Pennsylvania. And it gave dads, 
returning from war, um, sometimes not having seen their their sons, you know, for months or years, uh, a way to get reacquainted. Um, and you you also combine that with shorter uh, work days for dads, and uh, I'm sure that's how it happened in Hawaii as well, with uh, particularly with so many servicemen out there at that time probably got it going through that. That's how it started in some of the other countries as well, Japan, Taiwan, places like that. Uh, South Korea got started because of the connection with uh, the U.S. military services. And we always talk about baseball as a very American sport, you know. I love the idea that the Little League World Series is actually the world. It's always been something that, as a kid, was always special for me and my brothers growing up to see the international teams and to be able to talk about it. Yeah, one of the one of the greatest things about the Little League World Series is its international aspect. There have been international teams uh, first played in 1952. There was a team from Canada. The first time a, a non-U.S. team won the World Series was in 1957. A team from Monterey, Mexico won it. And, uh, of course, uh, Japan has won many times. Taiwan has won many times. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what the count is right now, but there there's a quite a large number of countries, 27 or so, that have made it to the Little League Baseball World Series at one time or another. Um, it's something Little League's very proud of. You know, baseball itself is a sport that really is a great way to teach kids about failure uh, because, you know, everybody fails at bat. Um, even the very best that are in the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, the best hitters in the Baseball Hall of Fame, were only successful about a third of the time at, at bat. But what it teaches you is that, you know, no matter what happens on the field, there's always a next at bat, a next day, uh, next season. I grew up watching a lot of baseball, and a lot of the times, these kids from Hawaii really only get to watch it on the screen or if they're part of a team that heads out to Williamsport. I think it's incredible so many of them have been able to see these games firsthand in the last few years. There's nothing in the world like the Little League World Series. You know, we, we always say that people should go see it once, and, and very often we hear from people who did try to go see it once and then came back for the next 30 years, you know, because they and they eventually became volunteers at the World Series, which they count on every year. So, um, yeah, it is a pilgrimage for a lot of people to this day. Do you hear of any people from Hawaii who come out every single year? You know, some of the key volunteers, um, the district administrators, I can't couldn't name them uh, offhand, but I remember them coming out um, every year to the to the games which, you know, literally always invites its district administrators out there. And, you know, there are key volunteers that are at the local level, and they just make sure that um, the, you know, dozen or so leagues that they're watching over are well run. Um, so we're always happy to see them. Is there anything you think is important for the public to know about the Little League World Series or anything you want to share with people? Just that we, we try to get across to all the teams that, only one team is going to end up as the world champion, but that every team that's there, all 20 teams that there have already proven themselves, have already established themselves as champions. Nothing left to prove. Everything that happens at the World Series is icing on the cake, so it's very important for them to enjoy themselves. And that's why one of the things we don't get to show people is what happens 
off the field. So you might have a, a tough, well-thought game that lasts extra innings and one team loses, one team wins, obviously. And the team that loses, you might see, you know, those 12-year-olds uh, crying out there as they're shaking hands at the end of the game. But invariably, 45 minutes later, they're up at the International Grove, uh, which is the on site there, the kind of like an Olympic village where only the teams get to go in there. And, um, you know, they're playing games in the pool or playing ping pong against each other or, or um, you know, playing video games up in the rec hall. Seeing that after such a hard-fought game is something that we really wish the public could see. It's great to hear that everyone's playing together, they're having fun, they're smiling, and they're able to look past the game. Yeah, that's that's what we try to get across to them, that what happens on the field is not what they're going to remember 10, 20, 50 years from now. They're going to remember the friendships that they made there, the people that they met from all over the world. And very often we hear from players that you know come back 20 years later and say they still keep in touch with players from the other teams that they played. So that that's more important than what happens on the field. That was Little League historian Lance Van Auken talking with HPR Sabrina Bowden about the Hawaii team's victory in the recent Little League World Series. Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi says he's targeting September 8th for a downtown parade to celebrate the team's victory. Earlier today, we asked you for the Hawaiian name of a fast-growing ground cover plant whose bright yellow blossoms can be seen along the sandy coastlines of our state. The indigenous plant with glossy green leaves and reddish-brown seed pods, well, the pods look very bean-like, and though, um, you know, they're edible, it's not considered a food crop. Early Hawaiians pounded the leaves, stalk, midrib, and stems until soft, and they applied it to wounds and sores. Able to thrive in different types of soil, ranging from sandy to clay, the short-lived plant self-sows and produces new plants easily. It extracts nitrogen from the air with the help of a symbiotic bacteria, and its roots help aerate and enrich the soil. Some people will mark National Beach Day by doing a personal beach cleanup, so you may see the golden blooms of what is commonly called the beach pea vine. Like many plants, it does have different names depending on where you are. And one of its more unusual is Okole Makili, which means crack buttocks, but its Hawaiian name is Nanea. And congrats to James from Maui. You got it right. That's our quiz for today. And if you've got something to share, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs> Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. On view now, cross-pollination, flowers across the collection, explores the emotional, psychological, and spiritual resonance of flowers in art. HonoluluMuseum.org. Professor Tom Smith wrote a personal blog post about the theory that COVID leaked from a Chinese lab. Then he got a call from the dean. Some students had read this blog post and they were so upset by it that they couldn't go to class. And did I want to apologize for posting this? The university investigated him instead. Why? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world.
Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Territorial Airwaves is the longest-running weekly radio show on Hawaiian music here in the islands, topping Hawaii calls. For decades, the program celebrated our music history. Music host Harry Bisorio took up the torch from his father and grandfather. Here's a Territorial Airways jingle that was composed and performed by Vic Rittenband of Waikiki. Territorial Airwaves is coming to you. On Wednesdays from 1 until 2 Golden Oldies is what Harry plays Telling tales of the grand olden days The Golden Oldies and Tales told by Harry B. Sorio could be heard on the radio weekly and thanks to technology now online. Sadly, we lost the broadcaster last year on December 7th, but to pay homage to his remarkable collection, a memorial concert is in the works to help raise money to make the collection of Hawaiian music accessible to everyone. We talked to his widow, Kilohana Siv, Kumuhula of Halau Omanoa, about Harry's wish to preserve the collection for future generations. Harry was like a walking encyclopedia of Hawaiian music. Hawaiian musicians would actually come to him for all kinds of information about their own family. And he really had a sense of mission with his collection. For over 40 years, Territorial Airwaves was a weekly show where he shared the music and so many interesting bits of knowledge that he heard from his father or his father's friends that he would weave into stories about the song being played on the radio. So it was so much more than your usual radio show with good music. It was it was really a kind of initiation into the importance and the vitality of Hawaiian music. So many musicians wanted to pay tribute to him. And thanks to the efforts of Milton Lau, who was the um, founder of the Hawaiian Flat Key Guitar Festival that just celebrated its 40th year, Milton uh, organized a beautiful concert that will be a part of this celebration of life on Saturday, September 10th. There will be a church service from 9 to 10, and then from 11 until 3 in the afternoon, it will be nonstop fabulous music as a tribute to Harry B. And gosh, there are going to be so many uh, musicians who were close to Harry and, and who really uh, admired you know, the work that he did uh, and the, the collection, the, the history that he put together. Uh, and and it it it's going to to be it is together now at the archives, and yes. um, the whole idea is that we want to make this accessible to everybody. Exactly, and 
you know, I am so grateful to Adam Jensen, the director of the archives, for working so closely with Harry and I um, over several months to organize the collection and to um, really, Adam took the time to understand what Harry's vision was, and in fact, it was very close to his wishes for the collection, that it really remain relevant. And I have some words that Harry wrote, and he was hoping to be there, of course, to to, to launch the collection once it was organized in, in the archives. Um, the desire is to have over 10,000 recordings, 10,000 records digitalized and made totally accessible to the public. So Harry's own words were, we aspire to remain as relevant as we possibly can by preserving and making public my personal recording collection and the collections of other Hawaii music enthusiasts wherever they live. In addition, these collections remain pertinent by encouraging personal study to advance one's knowledge and career. Our intention is to ensure that the Territorial Airwaves Collection remains present for future generations around the world. All these precious materials were given to me by my father and Hawaii music lovers. But we are all the stewards as they truly belong to Hawaii. So those were his thoughts about the um, significance of this collection, and he was really thrilled to be working with the archives and it's exciting to see this actually coming to pass with so many dedicated volunteers and great interest from students and musicians. So tell us about the musicians that will be taking part in this uh, concert on that day. The concert will open at 11 o'clock with Kavika Kahiapo, and there will be Bobby Madero, Kenneth Makuakani, is bringing together members of the Pandanus Club. Dwight Kamai is another. Danny and Nani Carvalho. Kamuela Kahuano. Ralea. They recently honored um, Harry in their in their most recent CD release. Jonah Domingo and Alan Akaka. So there, there are many, many very talented musicians involved. And our MCs are going to be Kimo Kahuano and... Brickwood Galateria. So it's going to be a lively, fun, uplifting, and beautiful, beautiful concert. And that concert then takes place till 3 that day, so folks can't make it for the whole thing. They can stop by. Uh, and the whole idea is to, to raise money for the foundation. That's right. That, that, is, that is the idea. And the foundation created by Harry and I is the Hawaiian Music Archives Foundation, and all funds will be going towards the digitalization of the entire Territorial Airwaves collection for public access in the future. And you will be showcasing, I understand, some of Harry's interviews before he passed. Yes, realizing that his knowledge of people and anecdotes, and he could listen to a recording and tell you exactly who was playing guitar, who was playing bass on any recording just by hearing it 
um, Carl and Reese began what we had hoped to be a, a series of 10 interviews to share some, some of these insights and, and knowledge. And so happily, we started um, just a few weeks before Harry went into the hospital. And we will be sharing some, some parts of that interview uh, during the concert. Harry's influence reached across the globe. I mean, I recall doing an interview with musicians uh, from Italy who used to listen to territorial airwaves and, and uh, you know, found their love for Hawaiian music. And, you know, just a, a marvelous thing to see the connections that Harry has shared through his love of music. Yes, and that continues. The interest is growing. And what's quite wonderful is that part of the collection that the archive now has includes all of these radio shows, some 20 years of weekly radio shows, and the very methodical, sometimes 10, 12, 15-page script that Harry wrote for each and every show. So all is included in, in the archives now, and just waiting for musicians and students and anyone interested in fine history to discover the wealth of information in there. There's so many levels of interest in these recordings, in the photographs, documents, correspondence, just listening to some of the older recordings for students of Hawaiian language. It's a revelation to hear how in, in songs the lyrics were pronounced by native speakers. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite different. A song that everyone's familiar with, like Royal Hawaiian Hotel, in the original recording, the intonation, the pronunciation by native speakers is quite different from the way we listen to that same popular song today. There's so, so much. You know, people with um, interest in particular subjects will find a wealth of material in, in that collection, and we're, we're hoping to, um, to work with students in, in many different respects. Mm -hmm. um, Harry and I enjoy doing workshops where he would speak of the different periods of Hawaiian music, and he would, he would share examples, and he would show images of, of how this kind of music was promoted at the time, and I would share a hula, bring it to life. The Hollywood period, so very different from the Tin Pan Alley period. And what's kind of fascinating is that when he first started his radio show, it was music that was from the generation of his father, an mm -hmm. older listening audience. But as years progressed, for instance, most recently, in his last shows, he found himself realizing that music from the 70s and 80s was no longer being heard very often on the radio. And so he began showcasing music from that period as well. So, yeah, he recognized the value of more current-day music as well, instead of just the, the, the older traditional standards. Right. And another, another thing that he realized he had done, over the years, quite a number of interviews, and he found a treasure trove of old interviews that he had done some 20 years earlier, 
and he brought them back and and um the last year um began playing a whole series of these interviews and he realized himself how valuable they were and how important it is we have musicians today that we, we need to to interview and uh, record while they're here mm-hmm. he embraced all different aspects of hawaiian music and what's what's so fascinating if you if you go to the the website which is still very active territorial airwaves you can listen to any one of over 500 radio shows. 500 available now and more to digitize. We've been hearing from Kilohana Sil, widow of Harry B. Soria, who we lost recently. There'll be a memorial concert at Kauai Ha'o Church on September 10th. Musicians will be paying tribute to Harry from 11 to 3 with a celebration of his life starting at 9. We leave you now with a bit of territorial airwaves in a nod to Harry B. Playing the best of yesterday and today, the best traditional and contemporary Hawaiian music, and you're right in the middle of Territorial Airways and saying thanks Ed, to you folks. Uh, we appreciate it so much, and we're playing some of the hits of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Now we tell you about the composer of the next tune that we're going to hear, Mary Kiliaukai Robbins. Okay, she wrote so many great songs. We played some of her songs in the past. We're going to do a version by the one and only Kahau Anu Lake Trio, Leahi, one you haven't heard in a while, I'm sure, because it never come out on CD yet. Eh? I all on our special Tanks Hash show right here on Territorial Airwaves, Hawaii 105 KINE. Here's Kahau Anu Lake. And that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from the head of the EPA Region 9, who'll be in the islands. Share your comments or questions by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.